This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with Trisha McCalka about storytelling, her new book, Misaligned Mind, and going no contact with her abusive sister. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. Today on our show, we have Trisha Mekalka, and we are going to talk about her new book, Misaligned Mind, and we're going to discuss storytelling, and then we actually get more into a personal story. We start discussing uh, possibly a future book and her sister and uh, the abuse that she endured with her sister when she was younger. And for those of you that don't know Trisha by her other name, she was on our November 30th, 2020 episode. Her name was Gal. That was the name we used. We changed names for everyone because of issues that happened in the past. So that is uh, her episode. So go listen to that before you listen to this episode if you want to. And for those of you that want to be a guest on our show, on our Survivor Story podcast, on that show, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. Fill out that form, and away we will go from there. Also at our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com, we now have a community support button at the top of the page, and that takes you to our very own safe social network. Our community members are on there posting on our forums. We have integrated Zoom support group meetings, which happen on Wednesday nights and Saturday nights. We have prompt workbooks for our episodes, and we're adding more of those all the time. And we want you to be able to dig deeper and get more clarity on your relationships in your life, uh, you know, so you can use our workbooks for that. You can also create and run your own events from meditations to closure ceremonies to single mom groups if you want. Uh, last night we did a meditation in our group. And our community members are all amazing people. They're here to support you when needed. They're cheering you on. Today, we cheered on someone for six months, no contact. So if you want some support, I guarantee you will make you feel less alone and you'll make tons of friends in the process. So go to our community today at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, click community support. And speaking of support, we have friends now at DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. DomesticShelters.org 
offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing. So you can connect with your local resources and find ways to heal and move forward. So please do get, so please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org to access that free resource. And another thing before we start our show is next week, we are going to be having on a guest to talk about toxic work places. And the host of that show, Carly, will be here to talk with us. And you can find her new podcast at toxicworkplacepodcast.com. It is a great show. She just started doing it. She's already a amazing at doing it. I cannot say more special words th- than that. Well, I can, but it really is uh, awesome. She's great. She's uh, an accountant by trade and knows the ins and outs of the corporate structure and is just fantastic. It's a great show if you are having issues in your toxic workplace, go to toxicworkplacepodcast.com. You can find it as well on Apple uh, Podcasts, and you'll be finding it across other podcasts in the future, and more podcast apps. But please do go and subscribe to this show. It's a great show. You're going to learn a lot, and it's, um, you know, next week you're going to learn a lot. We're going to introduce Carly here and you're going to love her and you're going to love her show. So thank you so much in advance for subscribing to her show. And now without further ado, here is my episode with Trisha. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. With me today, we have Trisha Makalka. Did I say it properly? I do it every single time. I say the L before the C, don't I? It's okay. Yeah, it's good. I always do it. I don't know what's wrong with me. I apologize. <laughs> and you wrote the book, Misaligned Mind, How My Faith in Rebirth Helped Me Escape the Abuse. And for those that don't know, you were also on our show. Your name was Gal that we used, and you were on November 30th, 2020. So we're, today we're going to discuss story. You know, you've been on the show before and told your story, and now you wrote a book where you should be very proud of yourself for just getting through one edit of a book, <laughs> let alone finishing oh. a book. So we're going to discuss storytelling today and survivors and how to tell their story and the different types of ways that you can tell your story. So, you know, the first kind of point I, for people who are going to write your stories, uh, is to be, is to really say to yourself, who is this story for? Is this story for you or is this story for other people? And if it's for you, then setting a tone and the feel of a story may not be important, but if you're going to be, if you want other people to read it, then setting a tone and a feel is important, you know, cause you're making the listener know, um, you know, what your situation is. You want them to be in the room with you or wherever you are. You want them to be able to, to sit in it with you and it makes them feel like they're along for the ride. So, you know, the goal of a story when you're doing it for other people is to have 
people listen all the or not just listen or read it all the way to the end. So for you, you know, how did you go about setting your tone and the feel uh, of everything as far as you know who you were? Because I think you did a great job in in doing that. But when you uh, set out your intention of writing it, was that something that was on your mind? Uh, and and how did you kind of go about it? Sure. Um, I definitely, I wanted to write the book for other victims and other survivors. That was my goal. Um, as kind of a, a validating book for them, an experience that they could go through my whole experience with me. So I wanted to be fully transparent, authentic as to who I was, how the relationship started and what transpired and how I ended up getting out because I feel like all victims and survivors, all those situations or circumstances might be different. The abuse is the exact same for everybody. And so as I started writing it, it was very cathartic for me and healing, but my full intention was for it to be a support and validating for other victims and survivors. So um, I really just kind of gave a background of my life before I met Dr. Jekyll and then how quickly and intently, intensely that relationship started and the whole cycle of abuse that we're all familiar with. So just, I wanted it to be a full picture of how it transpired. So one of the things that you were really good at was just being yourself and that the person that I'm talking to right now is the person's voice who's writing the book. And mm -hmm. you are you and you're a badass and, you know, you, you don't have a problem saying anything to anyone. You speak what's on your mind and you put people into those situations that you're in with you. And you, yeah. you, you're very good at um, having people, oh, by the way you talk, uh, on your side kind of immediately. You're like, oh, th this, this person's great. I want to be on, on, on their team. And you did yeah. a really good job of, uh, of doing that. And Thank you. You know, when it comes to, um, you know, your book and, and, and other books and just stories in, in general, even even with this podcast, is uh, I ask people all the time, well, what do you want the audience to learn? What do you want yourself to learn while writing the book? Because I'm sure there are things that you might have learned that you uncovered uh, during it, uh, what are the themes uh, uh, that someone who's going to be writing a story or telling a story should kind of uh, like harp on or just think about like what is the overall general kind of thing that I want to get across? Uh, how will you show that? And then are there any like little plot devices to kind of help you throughout it? You know, our podcast is pretty... Um, there's not really any plot devices in ours, but in book writing, there are, and you use some of those. So I guess, you know, starting off uh, from the beginning, because that was a lot of questions uh, all in one, I guess it's like, what did you want to learn and what did you want the audience to learn? Um, well, first of all, I, I've never written a book. This is my first book, so I had absolutely no clue. <laughs> um, so I did, you know, do some research as far as, the flow of a book, um, and I did take a few classes um, to kind of help me stay on track, and what I learned was you need to have an outline, 
and most importantly, the title of your book needs to be powerful, but your subtitle is actually your story. So mine's misaligned mine, which came to me in a meditation, which is perfect because he's a chiropractor. Um, but my, I didn't even put that together until you just said it right now. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Ha ha. <laughs> um, <laughs> but my subtitle is actually my story and what I wanted to share and convey through the book with my audience is how my faith and rebirth helped me escape the abuse because that is my journey. That is exactly the process I went through. I found my faith. I did a lot of healing on the most intensive scale possible anybody could ever jump into, but that's just my personality. That's how I am. So um, I wanted to stay on point with that as I discovered his abuse and give the tips throughout, you know, what I've learned about those behaviors now so that my readers can say, oh, yeah, I've experienced the exact same thing. That's what that is. And so it's just empowering to them, and it kind of helps them stay in line and, I guess, go through the story with me um, to give them hope. Yeah, because I always write to people in my emails back to them, is a, is a story is a story is a story is a story. But you have to mm-hmm. take people on a ride. And even though that might be insulting to some people because this these are your stories. If you're if you're trying to share your story with other people, you need to bring them on a ride. And sometimes on a ride there are ups and there are downs. So within that kind mm-hmm. of element of storytelling, you have to there this bad thing happened, but then you have the reprieve possibly. You know, the good, right. you know, so you're kind of going through that part. You're you're kind of weaving these things in there. And then throwing, you know, what you do a lot of the time during your story is you are telling your story, but then you start kind of talking and you're explaining a lot of the situations that are kind of going on, your feelings of the situation. So these are like little breaks of the story that we can get where we really get in depth of you. And Mm -hmm. that is one of the ways to kind of, you know, break up a story from being kind of like a straight thing. And, you know, you also in there throw in your plot devices because you're giving these tips and you're, you're noticing that these tips are flowing through your whole entire story. And then you have your red flags, which are flowing throughout your story that you're always pointing out as well. So you're kind of breaking up your story and giving it uh, a, uh, a flow in the sense of the reader gets a break from a story, uh, story. aspect of everything. Right. And then you kind of delve into some to, to other things. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So, yeah, I, th- I definitely are... wanted to add some yep. tangible things for the audience because I didn't want it to be monotonous and just a whole bunch of stories because it gets boring. And yeah, I want to well, keep my audience. <laughs> it's funny because in my notes right here, as you say that, I go redundancies cause people to stop 
reading when it's one story after the other. And the same with the podcast, which is that people stop listening. You know, the first thing I learned early on in the show, because we had statistics, uh, I was like, oh, people stopped listening to this episode. They stopped listening to that one. They stopped listening to that one. I had to go over them and figure out why that happened. And, you know, with reading, it's a different story because, you know, once someone you want someone to pick up that book and you want them to not put it down and, yeah. you know, it's a tough thing to do and, and you really did it. So, uh, again, uh, kudos uh, to you and whoever is listening. Um, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do. So, yeah. uh, you know, when we talk about um, stories of abuse, we have relationship stories. And we have family stories and we'll get to the family stuff in a second. But, you know, I send a thing out to people all the time, five different parts and the podcast eventually, not eventually the podcast at one time, I was really pointing out, uh, this is like part one, this is part two. And people got upset about that. So I kind of changed it. But in reality, I split it up into five parts, which is part one, as you mentioned, uh, what was your life like before the relationship? Uh, part two, which is, uh, you meet the person, love bombing, trust building, mirroring, future faking, shared trauma. You know, I write down here, you're hooked. Was uh, there an event that sealed the deal? What was the biggest bait in the hook? Uh, and, and why? And a lot of these things are, uh, story wise, but then there's, those are maybe surface level things. And then you have to kind of get into the nitty gritty of why those things worked on you. And for you, um, within your book and, and you being on, on the show, what were those things for you? Um, I think probably the biggest thing that hooked me was the fact that, you know, I had already been separated and was getting divorced and, oh, he is too. And we also had our sons are two and a half weeks apart in age. So the total opposite of my relationship with my son's father and his relationship with his ex-wife was heartbreaking to me. And as a mother myself and the way she was behaving, it, it just, it made me feel like I needed to mother him. Like he was clueless on how to parent alone and, you know, he was the provider and he was this and he loved his kids so much, blah, blah, blah. And so it was heart wrenching to see myself in his shoes, you know. And um, so that was a huge hook. Um, and I think just the fact that we had so many things in common, which we don't, but he pretended we did, you know, it was like, oh, this is my soulmate, like, because it was things that I was truly passionate about that I I didn't really share with my son's dad. Um, I mean, he was always respectful of the things I loved and supportive, but it wasn't a common thing we bonded with. And where with Dr. Jekyll, it was like my other half, you know, so... And just so everyone knows, if they haven't listened to your episode or haven't bought your book yet, which they should buy it today, uh, you, you call your ex Dr. Jekyll and uh, Mr. Hyde. And as you know, a lot of people experience the, the same thing, 
Um, but you know, that is now your vocabulary. It's like such your vocabulary. It's what rolls off your tongue, uh, instinctively. Now you've been, you've been uh, doing it for so long. So, um, part three of on, on my list of things is really the meat and potatoes of the story, which might not be the meat and potatoes really of your story, but, uh, it's the devaluation manipulation tactics. Did the tactics change over time? If you got smart to things, were there lovey-dovey periods that lasted longer? Uh, only, uh, so what else do I have here? Uh, when did you start losing yourself well, with the different tactics? How did you react differently? Are future plans being dangled psychologically? What's the hook your ex keeps using you to keep you around the most? Smear campaigns, sowing the seeds of doubt, et cetera, et cetera, in there. So when you were on the show and then also writing your book, in this kind of area, when you kind of delved a little bit deeper, and I think it possibly for a lot of people, did you uncover things about everything that you hadn't discovered yet? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it was it was brutal having to have a bird's eye view of everything that I had gone through, and I think that's probably one of the hardest things for all victims and survivors is that false guilt and shame and being angry at yourself that you fell for this person because it's all bullshit. Um, so yeah, I was hooked very quickly, very quickly. It was, it was quick. It was fast. It was intense. It was, this is too good to be true because it is. Um, and then, you know, just, Immediately, he isolated me from my friends, um, my family. Still to this day, love, love, love my ex-husband, and they forever will. They still call him their son-in-law, and I'm totally fine with it because he's a wonderful person, um, and he's the best co-parent. So I am very blessed to have that. But that was also a piece of him starting to devalue me and manipulate me because he was jealous that I had this great relationship with my ex and his was horrible. Um, There was a lot of, you know, trips and which I paid for a lot of our trips. I never got to travel with my son's dad, which was something and it's still something that I love. Um, and with him, it was like, oh, yeah, let's go. Let's go to Jamaica. Let's go to Punta Cana. Let's, you know, whatever. Whenever I didn't have my son, because he's always been my first priority. So, but it was things like that, like, oh, we have these grand plans, or, oh, one of our favorite bands is playing. He bought us concert tickets. So he would dangle all that over my head. Like, I can't believe you're acting like this. I got us these tickets, you know, like we're supposed to have a great weekend, blah, 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 you know, constantly. He would toe the line and pull the crocodile tears, crying, apologizing, so everything and convince me that he was going to try. And that historically would last two to three weeks before it started the same cycle again, same behaviors, lying, making everything my fault. So I was never able to get my footing or have enough time to wrap my thoughts around, you know, or wrap my, you know, my, it was, 
I mean, still, like I'm speechless. Like I don't, it's such a cluster. You can't even explain it. So when you're in the meat and potatoes of everything in writing, there's going to be re-traumatizing most likely. Yeah. And how does one deal with that on a day-to-day basis? The struggle of, you know, I'm going to do this. I need to do this. I have to get this out on paper to learn for myself, to do it for other people. And what kind of routine do you have to go through during that whole entire process to make yourself safe? Yeah. Um, I, I feel like I've got a pretty strong routine, but it still was difficult. There were times I had to put it down for a few weeks. Um, I get up every morning and I've tried to lay off caffeine because if I drink a lot of caffeine, it makes me anxious. Um, but I walk my dog. I try to be outside as much as possible and put my bare feet on the ground and connect to earth. Um, obviously I am a very spiritual person. I'm not a religious person because I think organized religion is BS, but I am very spiritual. Um, and so my connection and my faith in God is been my shield and my, my hope. So I've really leaned into that. And he kept reminding me like, and putting it on my heart, like I've got to do this. I mean, there's plenty of times where my ego and my fear of how people would respond or what they would think of the book or think of me would creep in. And I would be like, I can't finish this, but you know, I feel like I was meant to write this book. Um, and that gnawing, constant feeling of you've got to do this wouldn't let me sleep. So so during the process of writing this book, you encountered a roadblock. And that roadblock was the publishing company that you were yeah. working with. And yeah. they wanted you to water down everything to make it more appealing to the audience they wanted to sell it to. And mm-hmm. you were having none of that. So can you explain how that might have kind of re-traumatized you in the process? And, you know, because yeah. all of a sudden your voice, you're trying to, you're trying to use your voice and your voice is being taken away. Yeah. Yeah. That was so disheartening and frustrating and it's, it is re-victimizing. It's invalidating. And that was a big struggle for me. Um, so the publishing company I started with, I won't even mention their names, but they can kick rocks. They wanted to market my book, um, you know, as a biography, but also in like a self-help section, but also a Christian-based section, which is fine, but there is language. There is um, really derogatory and explicit details about my abuse, which is important because that's my experience. That's what happened. And so a lot of the things that I went through 
they didn't want me to add them or they wanted me to edit it out or they wanted me to soften it. They didn't like some of the cursing, which, you know, there's no other way to explain certain things. And a lot of my stories are taken from Dr. Jekyll's text messages to me and his emails and his secret messages to women he was having affairs with. So authenticity is huge for me. So I was going to keep it as authentic because having somebody tell you to water it down or to dumb it down and minimize it is exactly what the abuser does. It's not that bad. That didn't happen. It's gaslighting. I'm not okay with that. So we butted heads a lot and I, I kicked him to the curb and did it myself completely. The cover, the editing, the publishing, all of it. So we'll get to, or should we talk about the editing right now before we get to part four? Because the editing is obviously, well not obviously to a lot of people, you know, writing your first draft is one thing. Uh, editing your book and finishing it is another. So I guess before we get to part four of on my list here of the five parts, discuss your issues here when you're editing and how crazy oh, you went. Yeah, I, I think I think I sent you one of my first manuscripts and it was a train wreck with grammar because I'm not a writer. I am now, but, you know, this was my first go. Um, yeah, it was tough. I... When you, you, I have an outline. I mean, I have so many books that I have filled with like the outline and adding things because I'd be in the grocery store and something would, else would pop in my head and I'd be like, ooh, I need to put that here and add it. So I have notes everywhere in my phone and journals. But making sure that I got all those points and going back and rereading and rereading and rereading not only is that triggering but it's exhausting and your eyes start crossing <laughs> and there were days where I sat in front of my computer for 18 hours looking at this stuff um, so I would recommend not writing a book in 10 months like I did <laughs> which I'm proud of but at the same time it can get consuming and there are little errors that you make that you don't pick up on because you've looked at it so much um, but definitely be consistent and keep a routine and allow yourself time to step away so that it's not so inundating and causes a lot more stress that you are trying to stay away from creating in your life. So we'll remember that part about keep a routine and uh, let's just get to part four on my list and part four to me with your story is probably not the bulk of everything, but the most important part of everything. You know, I have in my notes, uh, part four for me is the beginning of the end, the end, you know, were you discarded? Uh, did you leave on your own Hoover's? If so, with Hoover's like back and forth, then there might be eventually a final end. If you have kids, there's court, there's custody, all these types of different battles that could go on in, in post, relationship abuse as well with within that part for you here the beginning of the end a lot of the, everything here is really in a, some way you know it's the it's the uh it's your title and it, it's you know where you started finding your faith 
in, in everything in really getting your strength. So I guess one question I do have for you is what was your relationship like with faith in God before this happened, which then got you to this point and can kind of elaborate on, you know, the general theme uh, of, of everything. This being, you know, your faith, no matter what got you through and maybe how you, you might have lost it before you even got there. Yeah, sure. So I am a granddaughter of a Nazarene pastor. Uh, my papa, who I mentioned in my book, is my person. And um, I'm going to get emotional. <laughs> he, um, you know, he gave us our foundation of faith when I was little. Um, but I never, I never really connected with the religious four walls in a building that that strict like force fed fire hose of water poured down your throat type religion i hate that that's what bothers me so much about religion um because i didn't feel like that was god but that and that's not how my papa was but you know we only got to be in his church when we'd visit um so the churches that I grew up in were the Southern Baptists, and it just, the people that went to those churches were the biggest hypocrites. You knew who they were outside of the church, you know, and it just made me sick. So I felt like I had a very skewed understanding of who God was. And um, I felt like he was just a man in a picture and I wasn't as favored. He wasn't as attainable to me because I didn't do X, Y, and Z. Um, fast forward into college, I started going to a non-denominational church here where I live, um, which became a really popular thing. And I loved it because they have like a full-blown concert before the service starts and the music connected me because that's just a part of who I am. I love music. And that was one of the things that connected me and Dr. Jekyll. That speaks more to me than a man behind a pulpit. Um, so I ended up going to this church for a while. Go ahead. Oh, so just a side note there, you know, I'm Jewish and one day my cousin and I were walking in an alleyway in Toronto and we just had breakfast and we heard this amazing music and we looked at each other and we we're like, let's just follow it. So we just started following the music and in a local high school on a Sunday, there was a pop up uh, church inside. So we're like, do you want to go in? So we went in. It was the best <laughs> music. We had the best yeah. time. Everyone was really nice. It was like a young, yeah. hip kind of crowd. But, you know, one thing that we always said we'd do if you were to come back to town, we'd, we would try and find to do that again because we actually had fun doing it. It was just, it was mm -hmm. just great music. Yeah. Yeah. M music always, I mean, it's, Music is kind of like my love language. <laughs> I can be super excited or it can break my heart in all the best ways. And like, I just, 
I feel it in the cells of my body. I have a very musically inclined family. Everybody plays an instrument. I play the violin. So I, I hear everything when I hear music, not just the lyrics. I hear all the instruments. So it's very emotional to me. And so I fell in love with that church. I met my ex-husband. Um, we continued going to that same church, but I still just wasn't, I was just struggling with my faith. Like I believed in God. I tried to do all the things society says, but it just wasn't, it didn't feel authentic to me because it wasn't the way I worship. It wasn't a part of who I am, you know, um, my ancestors are Cherokee Indian, so I love to be outside. Nature is God to me. I connect on a deeper level with that kind of stuff, which is kind of what helped me fall into the path I took. Um, but so when I, I got divorced, I was angry at God. Um, I felt like not only did I fail myself, but he failed me. And he was supposed to help support that marriage and that vow. And I felt like I couldn't have prayed any harder or been more patient. He just wasn't hearing me. So I had pretty much at that point completely dismissed him. And I guess I don't want to say I was selfish after my divorce, but I was I kind of felt like a kid again in college. I was like, well, I don't have my son this week. I'm a single mom. I can go do whatever. But it wasn't reckless things. It was things to feed my soul and finding myself again. Um, and that's how I got into pole dance and all that, which was amazing. And taking hip-hop dance classes because dance is another passion of mine. And it just felt good to kind of remember who I was. Um, and then I met the Antichrist. <laughs> you sure did. So at yeah. what, what, I guess at what point did, obviously during the time when you're with him, you know, your faith in anything just starts to, to, to deteriorate. And where, where did you get the glimmer of hope that kind of pulled you through within your story? Um, like, was there a specific moment where you're like, you grabbed onto your faith again? Yeah. Um, it took, there was many, many times, many red flags where my gut was telling me something was wrong. Something was off and I had dismissed it so many times, but I do remember, um, one night when we were spending time apart but not broken up and he was supposed to she's doing air ahead. quotes while she was doing that just so everyone knows spending time yeah. apart yeah because he wanted to focus on his kids and work when in actuality he was out screwing another patient so um i remember it was like three o'clock in the morning and he had told me the night before that he was going to stay home and play his guitar and whatever. And I was jolted awake and I just, this sounds insane, but I'm very intuitive and I felt so connected to him 
that if he stumped his toe, I could feel it, which also just makes me think even more that he is a demon. But anyway, like he had a spell cast on me. Um, but I woke up so abruptly and felt overwhelming nausea, like I was going to vomit. And I just started crying because it was almost as if I could physically feel him being intimate with somebody else. And I hit my bedroom floor and I threw up everywhere and just sat there on my knees crying. And I even had the thought of getting in my car to drive over by his house to see if he was there. But I was like, no, that's stalking. That's crazy. (laughs) You know, but it was, it was stuff like that. It was very physical for me. Um, and I was never wrong. Every doubt or question I had or thought of what he was actually doing, he was like, almost like I had some kind of psychic ability, but I knew that it was just my spirit and, you know, my faith was trying to wake me up and shake me and say, Hey, this is wrong. Like you need to get out of this. And I battled that for years because he was so convincing that I was losing my mind. I was crazy, and he would never do that. Well, he did over and over and over. So I started getting stronger and recognizing the patterns and could figure out his whole game, his whole routine before it happened. And, I mean, I I would say I guarantee you this is the next girl. And it would be like clockwork every single time. And I finally was just, I knew that I had to do something drastic and intense that was going to kick my ass to break that trauma bond to him. And that's why I did four ayahuasca ceremonies. Four. Oh, boy. It took, it took four. That's how strong it was. And what did you learn uh, within each one? And, you know, obviously you went back. So what was it specifically that, uh, I guess, the aha moments within them that you're like, oh, I got to do that again. I have to unlock something else. What was kind of going on in that process? So every ceremony was different. Um, A lot of them were healing ancestral stuff in my life. Um, I saw four different timelines of my life and every single one of them, I was poor. I was living in sense of lack. I was very codependent and I was killed in every single one of them in a vicious or very traumatic way. And it helped me, it helped me get rid of my sister um, and recognize who she is, which is a next book. <laughs> um, so just so, also, just, so, just so everyone knows we're on part five right now, which is the healing process, which is what you're going through. Yeah. yeah. Um, it helped me stop. It broke me down in a way that I would stop. I would stop being resistant and I would look at the patterns and the brainwashing and everything about me that 
was an addiction or was not an addiction as in substance, but, you know, people-pleasing, being codependent, um, trying to force something that I wanted to happen that was not meant to happen. You were able to see yourself from outside of your body and really be able to take, kind of take a step back and analyze things in a way that you were not able to before because before you were so in it, it was just impossible. And once you were able to, you know, do the ayahuasca, it was like you were, you were, it was clear as day to you as what was going on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not for everybody. It's the hardest and it sometimes can be the scariest experience, but it always ended beautifully and it was so healing. Um, and throughout each, each ceremony, I got closer and closer to God and saw who he is. And, um, one of the third ceremony I did, I actually went through a timeline of many, many, many traumatic experiences that I had even forgotten about in my life, just bad relationships, um, stored stuff down emotions that I had held onto, which stay in the cells of your body and a lot of heartbreak. Um, and as it was kind of, it was like each timeline, each event, it was like I was standing there with God for Jesus and watching it from across the room. And I realized in every one of those situations where I was denying him or I was lost and broken. He was right there with me. And I felt that light inside my soul relight. And it gave me, it gave me validation that my faith was stronger than I thought. And it showed me how strong I was. Uh, And then I started seeing myself through my father's eyes, not Dr. Jekyll's eyes, not, my friend's eyes, not my old boss's eyes or anybody that had done me wrong. Um, and I started learning to say no and stopped caring about what other people thought or trying to, you know, meet the bar or the requirements people had of me because they weren't mine, you know? And so I started being truly authentic to who I was and I got more, um, not selfish, but clear on my boundaries and um, started integrating these practices throughout my daily life. And no became my favorite word. I set time apart for my meditation. I went to breathwork classes. It's my time for myself was super important. And that was not okay for Dr. Jekyll because any free time was his time. I would get up at 5 a.m. to meditate so I didn't use up his time with me. And he would wake up just to start a fight with me at 5 a.m. because it was his time with me and I should be in bed sleeping. I'm like, you're sleeping. Go to bed. Like, this is my time. But it was so controlling. Like, he tried to keep me from getting stronger. And he even said to me many times, like, please don't please don't get 
so strong that you realize that you don't need me in your life. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no. You know, they always tell on themselves if you just know how to listen. So when it comes to these five parts of your story, you went through them. We just kind of discussed them here. Knowing that these are, you know, kind of the structure that you kind of want to do, what was the routine that you had to kind of go through to kind of shape yourself up every day before you even began to even write this? Yeah. Um, a lot of devotion, a lot of journaling, a lot of prayer. Um, even my diet, I, I still eat meat, but I try 90% of the week to be pretty vegan, plant-based, um, just to detox the metals and junk out of my body. I feel like when my body, my vessel is clean and it's not full of garbage, I'm able to I'm, I feel better. I have more energy. My head's clearer. I feel stronger. Um, so that's that's been a huge, huge habit and benefit since I left is changing my diet and what I put in my body. Um, and how did you decide what made it into your book and what was cut out of your book? Because a lot of people just want to put everything in there. And yeah. that doesn't always make for a, a good book or story to help people or, or, or teach people. So a lot of the time people don't realize it, but, you know, I record with people and sometimes it's really long and I have to get it down to usually under two hours. And that's not yeah. an easy process because, it's, first of all, it's not me who's the, whose story it is. And I have to be very uh, careful and delicate with the person's story is to not um to not take the essence out of the story while still getting someone to listen the whole entire way mm -hmm. and make sure that the story makes sense and that all of the major points are hit so for you were there certain things you wanted to throw in there and you really 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 did but you just had to like you know what doesn't it doesn't work yeah I mean, there, honestly, I could have written five or six more chapters of just the stuff he did. And, I mean, still to this day, things will pop in my head like, oh, my God, I forgot about that. Like, But I think a lot of his behavior was so repetitive with the affairs, the lying, the drugs. I took, like, with the affairs, you know, the first one was the most detrimental i mean they all sucked but i'm not going to give a bunch of attention to those women you know so i kind of kept it short in each one like the because the whole cycle for me at home was the same so i wanted to at least get the point across um make my point and it not be so redundant because people are like oh, okay and that happened again so i tried to keep it concise after i made the point of each um, situation, I guess. So you'd kind of, you... so, so you'd kind of tell a one story that showed everything. And then if there were like six or seven other stories, it, you kind of like montaged it in a sense of yeah. like, and then it happened six more times. Yeah. 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 
I mean, I kept the other seven and his intern affairs pretty short snippets. Like, then there's this girl, and this was da 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 and then there was this one, and, you know. They get the point. It's a behavior. It's who he is. So, so, so that was one of the things people should learn from, which is, you know, tell the one big one and then, you know, shorten the other ones, get people through it so they understand the repetitiveness of what was going on. They get the point of what was going on. You just don't have right. to go into the yeah. uh, details of every single one. Yeah. Point out the, the pattern and behavior. You don't have to get too in detail. And actually, I've learned um, for those that are going to court that have children with these narcissistic characters, the courts are wanting to see and hear more about the pattern and the behavior. They don't want to hear the term narcissist because 90% of people that are sitting on the judge panel or and you know, the judge or the attorneys, they're narcissists too. So if you can point out the patterns and the effects and danger of those behaviors, that'll help you have a stronger case for custody. Um, I've had several attorneys tell me that that work for coercive control situations and clients. So I'm about to go off the cuff here, off our little script that I didn't even give you because that's uh, how poor of a uh, host I am. So you mentioned your, your sister and that's another story. It's a family story and that in itself Mm -hmm deserves its own book. So when we think of family and, 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 you know, and, and telling this type of story, you know, uh, would you begin with, I guess it's your sister. So it's different than your, your parents, but would you still kind of begin with, you know, kind of giving a background, uh, again of your whole life, who your parents were. And in this sense, your, who your parents were, so we can understand that your, you know, that your sister was an anomaly. You know what I mean? Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, I absolutely. I probably would. I mean, I'm very close to my mom. Um, my parents are divorced, but they've both been remarried for over 25 years. Um, I have a really great relationship with my biological father. Um, my stepdad, I call daddy. He's He's been my daddy since I was eight. Um, So, you know, every family's got their shit. But my childhood trauma is because of my sister. And I didn't figure it out until I was with Dr. Jekyll that she's also a narcissist. And a lot of my wounding and patterns and codependency and people-pleasing and afraid to speak up and taking people's abuse is because of her bullying me my entire life. So in, if you were to write a memoir just based on your, your relationship with your sister, you know, you know, you kind of establish the setting, the background, your whole family life, the town you grew up in friends, you know, really the whole entire kind of, picture of the life. And a lot of times I think of the movie Mommy Dearest, which was also a book, which was uh, based on Joan Crawford and Joan Crawford, uh, you know, they set it in Hollywood, that kind of lifestyle, what she needed to be or, or, or or do there, the glitz and the glamour of it back in, in that era. 
and mm-hmm. for her career to, and she was not a good person, and for her career to get back on track, it was a good PR move for her to adopt children. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's kind of not the theme, but like you really understand her as a person at that point because, or the villain of it, because this is their motive, you know. And, you know, when I guess when you write your, your book for your sister, uh, or about your sister and you, it would be more of like what was her real motives in life and uh, uh, motivations and how that was kind of taken out on you and how mm-hmm. that kind of, uh, um, you know, affected your life on a, on a day-to-day. And a lot of these stories, the ones that you usually see, like the bigger ones that, you know, that come out, not just because I haven't ever really read any Survivor books, would be to kind of show everyone what you kind of went through, all of those things, and how you would escape the situation, the transformations that happen in you, things you learned along the way, and, and how your life changed. So I guess yeah. in, in a way, you know, when we discuss your sister and your future book that we will one day be on the show talking about, what would what would the, I guess the big things be about your sister about the transformation, uh, things you learned and like how she changed your life in the long run, and if it would be different from your current uh, your current book or is it something completely different? Um, I mean the circumstances are different, but the the lessons and realizations are the same. Um, I was able to take out people in my life that were toxic. And she's one of the biggest ones next to Dr. Jekyll. I mean, I even said to him, I was like, there are only two people on this planet that know how to hurt me to my core and are so vile to me. And that is you and my sister. And it was true. I mean, I think once I started being able to, see Dr. Jekyll's patterns, I could see hers um, because she's been the same since I can remember all the way till I was three years old. Um, And I I finally put my foot down. You know, she, she was just so angry all the, she is the angriest person I've ever met besides Dr. Jekyll for the most ridiculous reasons. And it was, so toxic and exhausting that I finally just started screening her calls. And then after so many times of my mother calling, grabbing her heart and having what she felt was a heart attack and crying because of my sister verbally assaulting her, I had it. And I divorced her two years ago. I haven't spoken a word to her since. Um, And it's been so amazing. (laughs) It's been so peaceful. I still have to deal with like my family members asking, you know, have you talked to your sister? No, I haven't. And I don't care to or ever see her again. She's no longer my sister. Like my sister died 20 years ago. So when it comes to your sister storytelling trauma, before one gets to even writing a story or a memoir about their family life, 
you should most likely do, and you should most likely, you should do is a, a lot of journaling, uh, blogging, if you're blogging your thing, just writing kind of things down, getting everything out on paper because you need to get that self-realization kind of going, self-esteem, kind of looking insight into a lot of these things um, by really breaking things down. So did you ever do that with your sister and your sister's story? Um, not as much because I was so consumed with Dr. Jekyll, but I have, it would take me a while to journal everything down. The difference is I had so much written down with Dr. Jekyll that my book kind of wrote itself. Um, but this is totally different. Um, I would really want to focus from a child's perspective because children are so, you know, easily swayed. And when you have an older sister that you look up to, but you can't look up to her and you don't feel safe with her and she's so horrible to you, you know, it, it makes your childhood really difficult. <laughs> so this is, you know, so, it, it created. So, sorry, so you would do it from the perspective of like a ten-year-old you. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. a that's a really interesting way to do it. Yeah, because what it did was create all those things and behaviors about me as an adult woman that made me such a delicious target for a shitty narcissist. So. But what a way to heal yourself at the same time by by using your inner child as the one that tells the story. Yeah, that's been, you know, that's been a huge part of my healing. I reconnected to my inner child and showed her what a badass we are and that she wasn't going to be silenced anymore. And I had her back and I still check in with her. You know, not every day, but I'll have moments. I actually, I have a little tabletop in my hallway here, and there's pictures of me when I was three and four. Um, and I just, I kind of have a dialogue with her. And I'm like, hey, girl, how you doing today? <laughs> like, you know, just check in with myself. And um, when I get anxious, when I get upset working on this book, I would tap in and check on her. So... I think it's important. So before we leave today, do you have any words uh, about storytelling, your process, uh, and words of wisdom and advice for everyone listening? Yeah, I would just say um, just ground yourself in your truth. Be you. You don't have to have an elaborate vocabulary or have a creative writing degree to share who you are. People want authenticity and it helps them connect a lot easier. So, you know, just share your experiences, be authentic, stand firm and commit to yourself. And it's empowering. You don't have to create all these crazy marketing things to, you know, attract an audience. People want real, so just share you. And everyone can find your book, Misaligned Mind, How My Faith and Rebirth Helped Me Escape the Abuse. 
by Trisha McCalca. Mc, I can't say McCalca. I, I said the C before the L. Oh. All right, everyone. I'm, so you can find that on Amazon.com.ca.com. Uh, mm-hmm. ca. Dot, uh, yep. co. uk. I think that's the how they, they do it in the UK. Um, mm-hmm. I might be wrong. I might get an email about that. And uh, so, really, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of my life, part of everyone's life. You're a second time. Um, <laughs> if you haven't heard uh, Trisha's episode, it's November 30th, uh, 2020, Gal is the name uh, you went by and uh, buy your book. It's a great book. Uh, I've read it. I loved it. And you'll learn a lot while reading it. You'll learn a lot about storytelling while reading it. So everyone from Trisha and I, we hope you have a good night. <laughs>